the nature, government, and function of the church, a reassessment. 2001, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England. Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Appendix B. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians 4, 11-12. The authorised version translates Ephesians 4, 12 in the following way. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Besides being a generally inadequate rendering of the Greek, this reading translates two different Greek terms by the same English word. There are three occurrences of the particle for in the English of the authorised version. But in the Greek, the first of these particles is pros, while the remaining two are eis. The Greek thus reads for pros, the equipping of the saints for eis, the work of service eis, the building up of the body of Christ. These three clauses are thus not coordinate. The second and third are dependent on the first. This interpretation is corroborated by the Greek. The phrase eis ergon diakonos is most naturally taken as independent of katartismon. The change of prepositions, pros to eis, points in this direction, but is not in itself conclusive. The absence of the definite articles, however, with the consequent compactness of the phrase, is strongly confirmatory of this view. The meaning accordingly is, for the complete equipment of the saints for the work of service. Paul is not listing the three functions of the church's ministerial offices, therefore. What he says is that the ministry of the church offices is there for the equipping of the saints, who are to engage in the work of service, and thereby build up the body of Christ. This is the most natural and straightforward reading of the text, but Lloyd-Jones has the ministry that is, the church officers, doing all three. The Apostle's idea in the entire context is that of the ministerial offices in the church. To that end, he has been specifying them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. He is not thinking of the ordinary, average members of the church. He is deliberately illustrating his theme by picking out certain offices and certain special callings. This is the entire context, and he includes those, and only those, who hold ministerial offices. There are five problems with this interpretation of the text. First, the context, despite Lloyd-Jones's protestations to the contrary, establishes the entire body of Christ as the subject of Paul's teaching, not merely church officers. Paul speaks of the one body, verse 4, and of the one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Verse 6, unto every one, that is, each one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He says, verse 7, likewise, in verse 16, Paul speaks of the whole body, not merely the ministers. This is the context of Paul's teaching on the purpose of the ministry and the work of service. He is clearly dealing not only with the church offices, but with the whole body, the church in the widest sense. The focus of the whole passage from verse 1 to verse 16 is on the whole body of Christ. 
Yet, Lloyd-Jones asserts that the ministerial offices constitute the entire context and that he includes those and only those who hold ministerial offices. This is a preposterous interpretation and constitutes a serious exegetical blunder. It demonstrates further a faulty hermeneutics and seriously inadequate theology of the Church. A much sounder exposition is given by J. Armitage Robinson. The second of these clauses must be taken as dependent on the first and not, as in the authorised version, as coordinate with it. The equipment of the members of the body for their function of service to the whole is the end for which Christ has given these gifts to his church. If the life and growth of the body is to be secured, every member of it, and not only those who are technically called ministers, must be taught to serve. More eminent service indeed is rendered by those members to whom the Apostle has explicitly referred, but their service is specially designed to promote the service in due measure of the rest. For, as he tells us elsewhere, those members of the body which seem to be feebler are necessary. Thus, the work of service here spoken of corresponds to the grace given to every one of us, which is the subject of this section. Likewise, F. F. Bruce writes, These various forms of ministry were given to the people of God to equip them for the diversity of service which they were to render in the community, so that the community as a whole, the body of Christ, would be built up. The three prepositional phrases in this verse are not coordinate one with another, as might be suggested by the RSV rendering, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The second and third phrases are dependent on the first, as is indicated by their being introduced by a different preposition from the first. Second, if Lloyd-Jones's interpretation were correct, we must ask, what is it that the saints are to be trained or equipped for? There is no simple answer to this question, given Lloyd-Jones's position. In fact, however, Lloyd-Jones concedes the point in principle when he admits that there is a sense in which it is true that our Lord has set all these offices in the church in order that we all may be rendered fit or furnished out for the doing of our service, whatever that service may be. But he refuses to acknowledge that such service is taught in this particular text because, he says, the whole context is against it, an assertion that has already been easily refuted. In other words, if the above question were put to him, Lloyd-Jones would only have answered that the saints must engage in the work of service, a position he was at pains to deny in his exposition of the text. His position is hopelessly self-contradictory. Third, if it were indeed true that the whole of this work of service is the responsibility of the church officers or ministry, we should expect the three clauses to be connected by the conjunction K and, before the preposition A's, in the second and third clauses, and there is no conjunction thus connecting the latter clauses. Fourth, Lloyd-Jones's interpretation reduces the church to the function of the ordained ministry, 
And, if the ordained ministry is to do the whole of this work of service and building up of the Church, what need is there for the grace given to each member of the body of Christ to enable him to work out his calling? Indeed, if it were the case that the ministry is to do the whole work of service, this fact would negate the ordained ministry's function as the training arm of the Church, since there would be nothing to equip or train the saints for, and thus no purpose for that function of the ministry, unless, of course, this equipping of the saints refers totally to training people to sit in church, listen to sermons, and pray. That is, unless the whole of the Christian life is to be reduced simply to church services, which is patently unbiblical. The argument thus negates itself. Furthermore, on such an interpretation, the calling of each one referred to in verse 1 would have to refer only to ministers, an idea that is clearly against the whole context. Fifth, Lloyd-Jones's interpretation of the text involves the reading of a technical meaning into the Greek word diakonia, meaning service, but usually translated ministry. Diakonia is the office and work of a diakonos, diakonos being a servant. But if any technical meaning at all can be read into the term, it must surely be that of deacon, Acts 16, 1-6, 1 Timothy 3, 8 following, an office that is precisely not the office of the teacher, and thus a meaning that would plainly contradict Acts 6, verses 2 and 4. Yet it is the office and work of the teacher that is understood to be indicated by the use of diaconia in Ephesians 4.12, by those who treat it as a technical term. This simply shows, however, that such technical meanings should not be read into the term automatically, and that close attention must be paid to the context in order to determine the correct meaning of the word. It is that careless reading of a technical meaning into the term that has led to the modern idea that the New Testament sanctions the ordination of women deacons, since the word diakonos is used to describe Phoebe in Romans 16.1, but diakonos is used for a great variety of services in the New Testament, including a waiter at tables, John 2.5, and the civil magistrate, Romans 13.4, as well as a teacher in the church, Acts 6.4, it will surely not be argued that the civil magistrate is commissioned to preach the gospel and teach the word of God. The feminist exegesis of Romans 16.1 demonstrates pertinently the danger of reading technical meanings into the term diakonos and its cognates without conclusive evidence from the context. The result, as with Lloyd-Jones's interpretation of Ephesians 4.12, is a distortion of biblical doctrine. All the saints are servants of Christ, and therefore the term diakonia has reference to the service rendered by each member of the body of Christ. Each member of the church has to fulfill the diakonia service to which he is called in Christ. Diakonia is not used in the New Testament in a uniform technical sense, and it is not legitimate to read such a technical sense into the word without sufficient evidence from the context. It has been argued above that neither the immediate context of Ephesians 4, 11-12 nor the overall context of the passage provides such evidence grammatically, linguistically, logically 
or in any other sense for reading a technical meaning into the term. Lloyd-Jones is by no means alone in his interpretation of the text, however, commenting on Ephesians 4, 11-12, A.T. Lincoln states, It is hard to avoid the suspicion that opting for the other view, that is, the view put forward in this essay, is too often motivated by the zeal to avoid clericalism and to support a democratic model of the church. It will hardly be objected that this essay supports a democratic model of the church. Nevertheless, it is hard to avoid the suspicion that the interpretation adopted by Lincoln and Lloyd-Jones is motivated by a zeal for clericalism and an autocratic model of the church. Strangely, Lincoln says, there are, in fact, no grammatical or linguistic grounds for making a specific link between the first and the second phrase. There are two problems with this statement in the context of Lincoln's comments on the text. First, he has just referenced a work in which grammatical grounds are put forward for the interpretation he rejects on the basis that there is no grammatical justification for it. He does not mention or attempt to deal with this grammatical argument. In view of this, it is hard to avoid the suspicion that Lincoln has not read the books he cites in his bibliography. Second, his argument begs the question, since he offers no grammatical or linguistic grounds for his own interpretation, that is, for not making a specific link between the first and second clauses. In fact, he merely asserts there is no such link, and he is reduced to bare assertion rather than argument quite simply because there are no grammatical grounds for his own interpretation. The parable of the man with a beam in his eye offering to remove the speck of dust from his brother's eye seems apt. Yet, as with Lloyd-Jones, he virtually concedes the argument when he says, An active role for all believers is safeguarded by verses 7 and 16. Why safeguarded? It is hard to avoid the suspicion that Lincoln realises that the interpretation he puts forward will lead to a distorted view of the church, as indeed it has done. His clerical interpretation thus needs to be safeguarded. He continues, But the primary context here in verse 12 is the function and role of Christ's specific gifts, the ministers, not that of all the saints. Again, this is begging the question. There is no reason to make this assumption. The grammar does not compel us to this conclusion. In fact, it supports the alternative argument. See below. The context does not compel us to it. In fact, unlike Lloyd-Jones, Lincoln concedes that the wider context is the whole body. There are no grammatical or contextual reasons to shift the focus of the passage like this. Again, we must ask the question, what are the saints to be equipped for by the ministry? The answer, which, as with Lloyd-Jones, Lincoln himself provides by his reference to the active role of the whole body, safeguarded by verses 7 and 16, is service. But if that is so evidently true, and both Lincoln and Lloyd-Jones concede the point, why do they, and so many other clergymen, then make such efforts to deny it in this specific context of verse 12? It is hard to avoid the suspicion that it is because the most natural interpretation of the text, both in terms of context and grammar, 
would sound the death knell of the clergy-centred view of the church that so many clergymen and theologians are dependent upon for their livings. It would seem that progress in understanding the true import of Paul's words in this text is held up simply by vested interest. Why? Money might start being transferred to worthwhile projects that involve people engaging in Christian reconstruction and true mission work in the world, instead of going to support idle ministers, liberal theologians and their decadent colleges. Furthermore, although the change of prepositions on its own is not conclusive, that is not the whole matter. See the citation from Robinson above. But even if it were, the change in preposition certainly does not support Lincoln's and Lloyd-Jones's interpretation. Lincoln has to argue his point of view in spite of the change of prepositions, although not conclusive in itself, is certainly corroborative of the interpretation put forward in this essay. On no understanding of the text can it be construed as corroborative of Lincoln's and Lloyd-Jones's view. However, when the change of prepositions is taken together with the other grammatical considerations mentioned by Robinson and the context of the passage, which is the whole body of Christ, as Lincoln admits, the most natural interpretation of the text is that put forward in this essay. It is difficult to see in the contrived interpretation of Lincoln anything but a desperate attempt to maintain a clergy-centred doctrine of the church that is alien to the text, alien to the New Testament, and indeed alien to the whole Bible. Lincoln lists those who argue for the interpretation put forward in this essay and those against it. Here they are. For it are Westcott, Robinson, whom I have cited above, Rowles, Bruce, whom I have also cited above, Kasserman, Ginilka, Clark, Bart, Caird, Mitten, Musner, Bratcher and Nida. Against this interpretation and for the clerical interpretation are Abbott, Debelius, Hansen, Masson, Schleier, Ernst, Merklein, Schnackenberg and Hamann. Lloyd-Jones, like so many other clergymen with vested interest in the institutional church, espoused a clergy-centred view of the church and of the faith. The whole of the Christian life in this perspective revolves around the clergy and their calling. Such a perspective empties this text of its vital force and implication for the Christian community. Lloyd-Jones adopted this interpretation of Ephesians 4.12 because the text did not fit his pietistic view of the world and the Christian service in the world, or rather lack of it. Furthermore, his use of disparaging terms such as the ordinary, average members of the church for those members of the family of God who are not ordained ministers in comparison with the special callings of those who are also demonstrates admirably the sacred-secular divide that is implicit in this perspective. We must reject, therefore, Lloyd-Jones's interpretation of this text. It is the church, the body of Christ in the widest sense, that is, to engage in the work of service and thereby build up the church, the body of Christ. The task of the ordained ministry is to equip the saints for this service. The ministry is the training arm of the church.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.